The following audio is from Two Pillars Church, a gospel-centered, missionally-focused church located in Lincoln, Nebraska. More information about Two Pillars Church can be found at www.twopillarschurch.com. Well, hey, when our oldest was a newborn, people would say things like, oh, she looks just like you. And I always had a little bit of a a hard time kind of, you know, seeing that. Um, But people would persist. They would say, no, you can definitely tell that she belongs to you. And that got me thinking this week, you know, how would people know, how would people know that you belong to who you belong to? What marks you as as a, a member of your family? Uh, well, Jesus in John 13, 35 says something very, very important. He says that there's a way to tell who belongs to him. There, there's something special about those who belong to him, those who are his disciples. He says, by this, all people... Now, I want you to just pretend for a moment that you don't know what the what the this is that Jesus was talking about. Maybe you really don't. That's actually conveniently helpful for us this morning if you don't. But let's just say that no one in this room has ever read the Bible before, and, and uh, we don't already know what the this is. If we, if we looked around this room, okay, if we observed each other really, really closely, like all week long, week after week, would we be able to figure out what the this is that Jesus was talking about? Or if we brought in some folks that none of us had, had ever met before, let's just say like some, some unbelievers from Delaware, all right? None of us ever met anybody from, from there before. They, they don't know what the this is, let's say, and they don't actually care, but they followed us around. Like they looked us over. They observed our lives closely. Would they figure it out? It, it's, it's something that's to be true of all of us. Something that marks us as Jesus' people. In fact, the Bible says if this doesn't mark you, if this doesn't describe you, you're not one of Jesus' people. By this, this one thing, this one mark that all of us share, all people, anyone, everyone, everywhere, is to know that we're his disciples. These people that are from Delaware that were going to follow us around, what would, they, what would they say? Would they say, you know, hey... Um, we watched them, and they live pretty much like everyone else, except they go to church most Sundays. Is that what they would say? Would they say, by this we know that they're Jesus' disciples. They give of their money. They give of their time to the mission of Jesus. That's not what Jesus said. The this wasn't giving. The this wasn't attending. It wasn't about serving. It wasn't even about praying or reading the Bible, doing a bunch of Christianly things. No, Jesus said that the way people will know that you're my disciples, the way people will know that you belong to me, he says, is if you love one another. By this, this, by this, all people, everyone, everywhere will know. They'll be able to tell. It will be obvious and clear. They'll know that you're my disciples, Jesus said, if you have love for one another. Well, the Apostle Paul takes up this topic of, of love in our passage today in Romans 12, doesn't he? And it's a unique passage. It, 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 it kind of feels weird. It almost feels like this random set of commands just kind of like slapped together. But actually, there's some, some form to it. Look at Romans 12, verse 9. Paul begins by saying, let love be genuine. 
Listen, multiple commentators point out that there actually isn't a verb in the Greek here. In other words, a literal rendering would be the love genuine, which functions then almost like a heading for the entirety of the rest of the passage. Paul is talking in this passage about genuine love, genuine love, the real stuff. If you're using something other than the English Standard Version, which we preach from here, your copy most likely says free from hypocrisy or sincere. Look, it's it's not fake. It's not pretend. It's not for show or or some kind of surface-level churchy niceness that Paul's talking about here. No, real Christian love, the agape love that Jesus was talking about in John 13, 35, and that Paul describes here is genuine. It's genuine. And genuine love isn't just a feeling, a warm and fuzzy that goes pitter-pat. It manifests. That's why Jesus also says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. It manifests. Genuine love is immensely practical. And it's to mark us as Jesus' people. See, real love compels us. It moves us. It manifests. And what Paul does in this text is he lays out specific types of behavior that manifest from this genuine love. And he words it largely as commandments. It's, it's not vague. Like it's, it's, not, it's not random. It's specific. It's not optional. This is the word of God. Describing, commanding how it is that we're to love. And Paul breaks it up almost neatly into two categories. Family love. Okay, love within the family of Christ. That's largely verses 9 through 16. And then enemy love. Genuine love manifests with respect to our enemies. That's verse 14 as well as 17 through 21. Now listen, there's a lot of confusion in our world about the word love. That confusion is not new. It's been going on at least my entire life, okay? And I blame some of it on the Jay Giles Band, who in 1980 declared that love stinks, all right? Listen, that is false teaching right there. Love does not stink. That's not what the Bible teaches us. But listen, the premise, the premise that love stinks eventually led Tina Turner to question in 1984, what's love got to do? Got to do with it, right? Chiming in that same year was Lou Graham, from Foreigner, expressing his confusion, I want to know what love is. I want you to show me, he said. 1985 didn't figure it out either. We have Hart asking, what about love? White Snake, 1987, trying to discern, is this love that I'm feeling? Is this the love that I've been searching for? Yeah. This confusion wasn't constrained to the 80s. Carried on into the 90s with Hathaway asking in 93, right? What is love? And baby, don't hurt me, right? Now, listen, you're like, how far is he going to go? I've got a couple more decades. Listen, the, the confusion of the 80s and the 90s is carried straight on into today. There's still a lot of confusion about the word love. In particular, in our day, love seems to imply or sometimes explicitly demand total acceptance of a person, like no matter what. Tolerance is the new definition of love. 
Listen, Paul drives directly counter to that in this text. That's not genuine love, he says. Look at verse 9 again. He says, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Abhor what is evil. That, that abhor is a strong word here. It means detest. It means hate. That's a strange way to begin talking about love, isn't it? But listen, real, genuine, biblical love manifests itself in an intense revulsion against evil. What is evil? Well, it's what God's word calls evil. It's not subjective, it's objective. It's sinful behavior, it's sinful lifestyles, it's living a lie, living contrary to God's law, contrary to God's will. And there's all kinds of evil in our world. And there can even be evil in the church. This command is within the section of Paul's commands right here that I'm dubbing family love. And so while there's a general command for us to hate evil in general, I believe Paul has something even more akin to 1 Corinthians 5 in mind here where he says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or the swindlers or idolaters. Since then you need to get out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church who you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Listen, is there evil in the world? Yes. Yes, there is, but we're not commanded to isolate and not associate. Then we'd have to get out of the world. God judges those outside. We're to purge evil inside, inside the family of God. And in both cases, we're to abhor evil. Not just avoid it. Not just avoid certain behaviors. It's possible for you to avoid doing evil things, but then secretly still desire them in your heart. Paul's not talking about restraint here. He's talking also about having a positive hatred for evil. And conversely, equally and oppositely, we're to hold fast to what is good. God's good. His good and right and perfect will. And the word hold fast here is just as strong as the word abhor. It means to cling. Like you and I are to stick to God's good like glue. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure and lovely and commendable and excellent, worthy of praise, cling to it, Paul says in Philippians. Saturate your mind with it. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind by it. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Now, why does Paul bring this sort of stuff into talking about genuine love? Well, listen, because when we love someone, we're tempted, aren't we? To allow our view of good and evil to be compromised. To be distorted. See, in love, we can begin to excuse sinful behavior. We can begin to excuse sinful lifestyles. And yet the Bible teaches us here that we cannot love rightly without abhorring rightly. In fact, if we don't abhor what is evil, our love isn't really 
genuine. Listen to how one author talks about this. He says, God's law reveals the way in which our world and our souls were designed. And so to disobey God's law is always bad for the beloved. Therefore, real love is concerned about truth. Any love that is afraid to confront the beloved is not really love, but a selfish desire to be loved. This kind of selfish love is afraid to do what is right toward God and the beloved if it risks losing the beloved's affection. It makes an idol out of the beloved. It says, I'll do anything to keep him or her loving me. This is not ultimately loving the person. It's loving the love you get from the person. In other words, it is loving yourself more than the person. And so any love that cuts corners morally or fails to confront is not really love at all. Abhor what is evil. Cling to, hold fast to what is good. Next, Paul says that genuine love manifests as brotherly affection. Look at verse 20. He says, love one another with brotherly affection. Here's one of the many one another's that we have in the New Testament. And one of the clues that this section is focusing on family love. right? The love within the body of Christ. Remember, Paul is writing to the church in Rome. A mix of Jewish and Gentile believers who struggle to always get along together. And he's telling them, he tells them here, love one another with a brotherly affection. Philadelphia is the word. And it's a word for the love amongst family members. Paul is saying genuine love practically lived out manifests in loving one another as if we were related. Now, I've got a brother, real life brother. You know what I'm talking about? We get along just fine as adults, but we didn't always get along together as kids. Um, I remember one time, I've probably shared this, my favorite, like me attacking my brother story. Um, probably told it to you before, but I remember one time sitting in our basement and me sitting on the couch and him sitting on dad's chair and he said something that just like provoked me, right? And I, I think we were watching like WWF or something like that. And so I get up and stand up on top of the arm of the, the old 1980s like couch, right? And I just like lurch at him, like flying elbow drop to land on him in the chair next door, right? It was crazy, but we all, we didn't always get along perfectly, um, and yet he's my brother. Even today, we don't always agree on everything. And yet he's my brother. We don't spend every waking second together. And yet, he's my brother. There's a bond there, a deep, deep Philadelphia. Genuine family love in the church is to be similar, Paul says. We will not always get along perfectly. Do you know why? Because we're still sinful. That's why. Every one of us, every single person in this room. And do you know what sinful people tend to do to each other? Sin. We sin against each other. That's what we do. And do you know how sinful people who have been sinned against tend to respond? Sinfully. Yeah. And yet, we're brothers and sisters in Christ, and our relationship is to be marked by brotherly, sisterly affection for one another. We won't always agree on everything. And yet we're brothers and sisters of Christ and our relationship is to be marked by that bond. 
We will annoy each other sometimes, disappoint each other sometimes, and yet we're brothers and sisters in Christ, and our relationship is to be marked by our brotherly and sisterly affection. You know, one of the, one of the heartbreaking things that I, I saw during 2020, 2021, all the, all the brokenness that we saw within the church, um, all the turmoil uh, of our society and our culture and all that, one of the heartbreaking things wasn't the disagreements, it was the lack of affection shown in the disagreements. The brotherly affection that we're called to as Christians. And so if we go back to the beginning, right? And Jesus saying, by this, everyone's going to know that you're my disciples. And I fear that in many segments of evangelical Christianity, many segments of the church, including our own, we were not distinct from the rest of the world in our disagreements. We lost the brotherly affection. <laughs> we can disagree on stuff like masks and vaccines and politicians and policies and politics, but we're commanded here. We can disagree on that stuff all day long, but we are commanded here to love one another with brotherly affection. We need to be able to say to someone who's losing that, who's lost that, you may very well be right on this issue, but how you're treating your brother is wrong. And, and therefore, nothing here is right. There's to be a deep, familial, genuine love commitment to one another within the body of Christ. Verse 10, uh, the rest of verse 10, he says, outdo one another in showing honor. That's what Paul says next. And each of these could be a sermon all to itself, right? You're going to want to come back and just like slow read through these and meditate upon these truths, these commands. This is closely related here to the brotherly affection and as a practical manifestation of genuine love. Look, genuine love considers the other person more than it considers itself. It puts others first. It puts others higher. It involves listening to the other person, considering the other person, your brother or sister in Christ, thinking of their needs. It's seeing the image of Christ in them and honoring Christ in them. Notice this has nothing to do with being inferior or less important. Christ lives in you too. And because Christ lives in you, you have everything you truly need. All the honor that you truly need. All the value that you truly need. All the acceptance. All the love. All the worth. And that frees you. It frees you to outdo the other person in showing honor. I mean, can you imagine a Christian friendship or a Christian family or a marriage or a gospel community. Can you imagine a, a Christian church where everyone was doing this perfectly? What would be the result? Listen, the result would be everyone experiencing this aspect of genuine love. Instead of craving honor and value and worth, instead of demanding it and, and, and hoarding it like we can tend to do, we'd all give it away. 
And as we all gave it away, as we all would seek to outdo one another in showing honor, we would all then find ourselves participating in both giving and receiving of the genuine love. Verse 11, we'll take all these next ones together. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord, Paul says. All three of these commands seem to relate to our zealous service, a kind of zealous service within the family of God that seeks to serve others with the gifts that God has given us that, Paul, or that Adam was talking about last week. And we serve one another as though we're serving the Lord himself. We're to serve one another with zeal, like not with apathy or indifference. We're to be fervent in spirit. Some, some translations capitalize the S there and think it's a reference to the Holy Spirit. And whether the reference is to the Holy Spirit or not, we're to burn inside with fervency to serve others out of a genuine love for them. This isn't going through the motions. It's a joyful zeal. And it's rooted in the truth that as we serve, we're not just serving one another. We're not just doing a bunch of church chores. We're serving the Lord. That's what motivates the zeal and the fervency. You're serving Jesus. Man, I'd like to grow in that, wouldn't you? I would. The next expression of genuine love in the family of God brings three more commands together. He says, rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. And be constant in prayer. Now we're tempted to take those and jot them down as little reminders to ourselves, for ourselves, aren't we? And that's a completely appropriate kind of secondary application here. Exhorting yourself, reminding yourself to rejoice in hope and that you can because of Jesus. To be patient in tribulation that you can because of Jesus. To be constant in prayer. That's all fine. That's all well. But the context here is not self-love but love manifests into the lives of your brothers and sisters in Christ. Which means when we think of these commands in that way, they combine in a way that leads us to encourage one another to stay the course when life gets hard. Rejoice in hope with your sister in Christ when she can't. Be patient in tribulation with your brother when he's deeply into that with him. Be constant in prayer for others. Like you and I, man, every single one of us in this room need other Christians around us who are able to say to us when we're losing hope, when we're in the midst of tribulation, we need to hear from others in this room, don't give up. Don't give up. God is with you, and so am I. He's not leaving you, and I'm not either. I know it's hard. I know it's long. But there's hope because of Christ. Let me pray for you, right? And let's keep clinging to him together. <laughs> That's genuine love. It's not ho-hum. It's, it's not cynical about hope. It doesn't lose hope when your sister loses hope. 
It's not impatient or intermittent when your brother is in the, in the midst of tribulation. It's rejoicing in hope, being patient in tribulation, constant in prayer with one another. It's also generous and warm. Verse 13 says, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Genuine love, Paul says, is very practical. Helping meet very practical needs within the family of God. Sharing out of our abundance to meet the needs of others. Opening up our homes and our lives and our very selves to each other. Not just passively, not just like, ah, you know, as the opportunity kind of comes up. No, Paul says, seek to show hospitality. Pursue it. Be active in pursuit of it, looking for opportunities. Listen, as we get in deep like that, we also, verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. We share in one another's joys and we share in one another's sorrows. You know, Paul says in, a, in another place, taking, uh, talking about the, the church as a body and each of us as members of it, he says, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Rejoicing with those who rejoice and weeping with those who weep means we actually step into the inner world of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Weeping with those who weep, rejoicing with those who rejoice. Which, I wonder, do you think is more difficult? We know intuitively what it means to weep with those who weep. Right? Some of you in this room are incredible at it. I've seen you. I've witnessed it. Entering into the pain of the other, uh, sharing in it, coming alongside them, not trying to fix it, not trying to cure it or be the alleviator of it. Not trying to really quick slap a Bible verse on it to make it all better and so you don't have to deal with the pain, but just slowly, patiently coming into their world, sitting in it together, perhaps quietly remaining constant in prayer. Patient in tribulation. Rejoicing in the hope of Jesus. Listen, that can be hard. That can be uncomfortable. But it's genuine love, and we're commanded to it, to weep with those who weep. But then also to rejoice with those who rejoice, which I think if we're honest, is probably actually more difficult for us. Um, if you're single, and another one of your friends gets married, if you're um, broke, and another one of your friends gets a raise. If you're struggling with infertility, and another baby is born within the church, this is not an easy command to obey. Genuine love within the family of God is not easy. No one ever said it was. And yet, this goes back also to your relationship with Christ. It's only when you're so full of Christ, so satisfied in Christ, rejoicing in Him 
and all that he is for you and all that he's done for you, that you can even begin to rejoice with others when they rejoice. Lastly, under the category of family love is verse 16. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. There's actually four commands here, but taken together, they all have to do with pride. You can't live in harmony with one another, all the other of the, of the family of God, right, if you're prideful. So Paul says, don't be prideful. Don't be haughty. Associate with the lowly. In other words, all the commands that are here in this text, all the manifestations of genuine love, we're not to be selective in who we love in these ways within the family of God. We're to love all our brothers and sisters in Christ in these ways. All of them. Never being wise in our own sight, never thinking more highly of ourselves, but loving our brothers and sisters in Christ with this genuine love. Listen, even the one who thinks differently than you, even the one who posted that thing on Facebook that you just wanted to burn down the internet about, right? Even the one who annoys you, said something insensitive to you, even the one who sinned against you. Which leads us closer into the second major section, moving out of the category of family love now into the category of enemy love, which is especially unique to Christianity. Like anyone could nod their heads and, and agree that we ought to be, we ought to us who are like us, those who are around us who think like us, who are of our tribe. But what about those outside the tribe? What about non-Christians, those who you think are crazy and those who think you're crazy? What about those who oppose us, persecute us? What about our enemies? You may have noticed we skipped verse 14, but in verse 14, Paul commands us, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them, which sounds an awful lot like Jesus, doesn't it? Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Only loving those who love you isn't genuine love. Anyone can do that. Jesus said, hey, look, even the tax collectors can do that, he said. And so we're to bless those who persecute us, bless and do not curse. It's positive and negative, isn't it? It's one thing to not curse your enemy. Again, to restrain from cursing, that's only half of it. Bless them. Genuine love is not only about restraint, it's about positive good too. Bless them. Pray for them. Pray good for them and really mean it. Not in like a sarcastic way. But really mean it. Desire for them to be saved, for them to be transformed in their lives, to walk in accordance with God's good and perfect will. Manifesting genuine love for them by blessing them. This is, this is one of the most, I don't know if you realize this, this is one of the most radical teachings of Christianity that there is. It, this is radical. And yet, this isn't typically what we think of when we think of a radicalized Christian, is it? Is it? When we think of a radical Christian, the most fervent of fervent, the radical of the radicalized, 
Do we picture this? Loving, gentle, genuine, abhorring evil still. We haven't lost verse 9, holding fast to what is good, but loving, blessing others, not cursing them, not dismissing them or belittling them about their beliefs, not mocking them or dishonoring them behind their backs, but living winsomely towards others outside the family of God who may even persecute and oppose the family of God? That's radical. Is that what you picture in your mind when you think of a radical Christian? Or do we picture someone with a picket sign and a bullhorn being a part of a protest group? Are you seeing how practical genuine love is? And how our genuine love isn't just reserved for our brothers and sisters in Christ. It's for everyone. It's for even those who persecute us. Bless them, Paul says. Bless and do not curse. And then look at verse 17. It says, repay, we're going to take all this the rest of us at once. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Listen, that last part there about heaping burning coals, it befuddles the commentators. You, might have, you probably know what it's about or something like that, right? Um, listen, whether it's a sign of judgment or an act of good that is to bring about shame and contrition, uh, contrition isn't super clear. But regardless, the point of these verses taken all together is to not retaliate against your enemies. And the context, lest we forget, is personal relationships. Right, Paul's not talking about self-defense here. He, he's, he's not talking about the role of the police or the, the law courts or the, the government. He's not talking about national politics or international conflicts involving war. We'll touch on some more of that when we get to Romans 13. But he's talking here in Romans 12 about personal relationships with your enemies. And he says, you're not to curse them, verse 14. You're not to repay evil for evil, verse 17. And you're not to avenge yourself, verse 19. Instead, he says in verse 18, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. And so you don't just say, I'm done with it. And cancel the relationship. That's not honorable in the sight of all. That's not honorable in the sight of anyone. And it might be repaying evil for evil. Again, it's positive and it's negative. No, to, to not repay evil is to refuse to escalate the conflict. But that's not enough. Not escalating, just not escalating isn't enough. We're also called to be positive peacemakers. So far as it depends on us. And listen, that as far as it depends on you, peace... Just so you know, it's not a loophole. It's not, it's not explicitly just about you. It's actually about the other person. In other words, 
This isn't like your sidestep loophole for you to get through if you're just so angry that you can't restrain yourself. That's not what he's talking about here. This is Paul instead being realistic enough to know sometimes it wouldn't be safe to live peaceably with that enemy. Think of instances of abuse. But even more common, sometimes the other person has no interest in living peaceably with you. And so you do your part, you seek to love this person. In all the ways we've been talking about, show forgiveness, bless, and do not curse. Give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If he's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. In short, live at peace. Do everything that you can. And then leave it in the hands of God. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. That's a quotation from Deuteronomy chapter 32, and it's the key to understanding genuine enemy love in a biblical sense. See, the Bible doesn't teach just ignore it and pretend like it never happened. Sweep it under the rug theology. This isn't the theological doctrine of being a doormat. The Bible teaches us that God never ignores it, and he always treats it like it happened. He sees everything. He knows everything. Every act of persecution, every act of evil, every act of injustice or harm or abuse, every personal attack, every slanderous word, every sin that has ever been committed against you. He sees it all and he punishes it all. Every act of sin, every act of sin will be punished, even yours. For those who are here that are Christians, that's what Good Friday was about. Jesus took on the full punishment for all your sins on the cross. They've been dealt with. It's not like you're just forgetting about it. He dealt with them. He put them on Jesus. For your enemies. Either the same will be true for them when they truly trust in Jesus or they will bear it themselves, they'll bear the punishment themselves on into eternity. This, and only this, is why we can live in such a way as to not avenge ourselves. We leave it instead to the wrath of God. Believing that God exists, and that He's holy, that He's just, and that He will return and He'll punish evil. Like really believing that is the only way we avoid, as verse 21 says, being overcome by evil in this world. And instead are able to live lives of overcoming evil with good. And listen, in this way, we start to see that the genuine love that Paul is talking about here is gospel love. After all, Jesus didn't just not give us what we deserved. He gave us everything we didn't deserve. Like, let's not forget Romans 5.10. Have you forgotten Romans 5.10 that says, what, while we were enemies of God, we were enemies of God. 
Right? We were evildoers. We were his enemies. We, while we were still in that state, active enemies of God, Jesus broke into our evil-filled enemy lives and reconciled us to God by his death. Like God didn't retaliate. He didn't repay you evil for your evil. Instead, he put it on Jesus. The same Jesus who didn't just give thought to do what was honorable in the sight of all, he went through with it. And because he went through with it, he is honored in the sight of all, or at least will one day be when he returns in power and glory and every knee bows and every tongue confess that he's Lord. As far as it depended on him, he lived and lives peaceably with all. Like he, he gave his life dying on the cross. There's nothing more he could do because he did it all. He paid it all. And through his death on that cross, Jesus showed us and made us recipients of his enemy love. And through his resurrection and through Trusting in him as our risen savior. He gives us new life. He welcomes us in and he showers us now with his family love. And the only way that you can love your enemies, the only way you can love anyone genuinely is for the enemy love of God and the family love of God to settle in on your heart and transform you. Like, Are you getting this? It's only because of the enemy love of God that you have become a friend of God, welcomed into the family of God, experiencing the family love of God. And because of the enemy love of God shown to you, you can love your enemies. Because of the family love of God, you can love the family of God, this family of God. And when you do, as you do, everyone will look at you and know exactly who you belong to. They're going to look at you and they're going to say, you look just like your daddy. As we do this together, church, everyone everywhere will know we're Jesus people if we have love for one another. It's one of the greatest ways that we can witness to others. Living lives of genuine love, genuine family love, genuine enemy love, Explaining along the way how it is that we can do it and why. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your genuine love for us. Thank you that while we were your enemies, you sent Jesus for us. Thank you that on the cross, he took on the punishment that we deserve for all of our evil, all our sin. Thank you for his resurrection and him rising from the grave and giving us new life new lives of genuine love for others. It's good news, Lord. And so thank you for welcoming us into your family and for the experience of genuine family love from you and from one another here. And lead us now with transformed and transforming hearts to love one another as you've loved us, even to love our enemies as you have loved us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio from Two Pillars Church. Feel free to share this audio with others, but please do not alter or edit the content in any way. 
For more information about Two Pillars Church, please visit www.twopillarschurch.com.